0: Today, we have an interview with award-winning author Roy Scranton. Roy Scranton's work was selected for the Best American Science and Nature Writing in 2015, and he was awarded a Whitting Fellowship in Humanities, as well as a Lannan Literary Fellowship for Fiction. His recent works include I Heart Oklahoma and We're Doomed. Now what? Currently, he teaches at the University of Notre Dame as an English professor. Today, Mia Funk and Sarah Claudia talked to him about his latest novel, I Heart Oklahoma, along with Climate Change in America, imperfect societies, and learning how to die. And that's a quote. Without further ado, let's hop right in.
1: Royce Scranton, welcome to the One Planet Podcast.
2: Thank you for having me on.
1: Yes. So just to give people an idea of your writing, you're going to read to us from I've Said Goodbye to Normal, You Should Too?
2: Yes. I'll just read some excerpts from that opinion piece from the New York Times. What does normal even mean anymore? It's easy to forget that 2020 gave us not just the pandemic, but also the West Coast's worst fire season, as well as the most active Atlantic hurricane season on record. And while we were otherwise distracted, 2020 also offered up near record lows in Arctic sea ice, possible evidence of significant methane release from Arctic permafrost in the Arctic Ocean, huge wildfires in both the Amazon and the Arctic, shattered heat records, bleached coral reefs, the collapse of the last fully intact ice shelf in the Canadian Arctic, and increasing odds that the global climate system has passed the point where feedback dynamics take over and the window of possibility for preventing catastrophe closes. Going back to normal now means returning to a course that will destabilize the conditions for all human life everywhere on earth. Normal means more fires, more category 5 hurricanes, more flooding, more drought, Millions upon millions more migrants fleeing famine and civil war, more crop failures, more storms, more extinctions, more record-breaking heat. Normal means the increasing likelihood of civil unrest and state collapse, widespread agricultural failure and collapsing fisheries, millions of people dying from thirst and hunger, new diseases, old diseases spreading to new places, and the havoc of war. Normal could well mean the end of global civilization as we know it. I remember March 2020 in the first throes of the pandemic when normal was abended. Everything was shut down. We hoarded toilet paper and pasta. Fear gripped the nation. But along with the fear, I remembered a lesson I'd learned in Iraq. I'd been a soldier in Baghdad in 2003 and 2004, where I saw what happens when the texture of the everyday is ripped apart. I realized that what we call social life was a vast and complex game. With imaginary rules, we all agreed to follow. Fictions we turned into fact through institutions, stories, and daily repetition. Some of the rules were old, deeply ingrained and resilient. Some were so tenuous they'd barely survive a hard wind. What I saw in Iraq was that every time you shock the system, something breaks. Sometimes those breaks never heal. There's no way we can undo the damage we did to Iraq or bring back the lives lost to COVID. But sometimes those breaks are openings. Sometimes those breaks are opportunities to do things differently. In March last year, watching an unknown plague stalk the land, I felt fear, but I also felt hope. The hope that the virus, as horrible as it might be, could also give us the chance to really understand and internalize the fragility and transience of our collective existence. I hoped we might recognize not only that fossil fuel-driven consumer capitalism was likely to destroy everything we loved, but that we might actually be able to do something about it. As the pandemic wore on and is now in this strange twilight period, desire to get back to normal has increased, but I worry that the hope for radical positive change has subsided. But this isn't something we can let go of. We can't afford to, because we won't see normal again in our lifetimes. Our parents and grandparents burned normal up in their American-built cars, with their American lifestyles, their American refrigerators, and American dreams. Now China and India are doing it too, because capitalism is global, and we sold it wherever we could. More than three quarters of all industrial carbon dioxide emissions have occurred since 1945, and more than half have occurred since 1988 since we knew what global warming was and what a danger it posed. The next 20 years will be a period of deep uncertainty and tremendous risk, no matter what. We don't get to choose what challenges we'll face, but we do get to decide how we will face them. The first thing we need to do is let go of the idea that life will ever be normal again. Elsewhere, I've called this learning how to die. Beyond that, we need to stop living through social media and start connecting with the people around us, since those are the people we'll depend on the next time disaster strikes. And disaster will strike, you can be sure of that, so we must begin preparing today for the next shock to the social order, and the next, and the next. None of this will matter, though, if our preparations don't include imagining a new way of life beyond this one, after the end of fossil-fueled capitalism. Not a new normal, but a new ethos adapted to the chaotic world we've created.
1: It's so strongly put. And you called it, elsewhere, as you said, learning how to die. But yes, how to live with less and how to reimagine, you know, what the point of life, what is our capitalism, what all these things that we've held to be true that are actually killing us. So I also know you have a young child. How will you prepare your child for the future and... You know, this is something that's on all our minds, even those who don't have children.
2: That's a huge question. It's something I think about as a father and as a teacher. There's a couple of different ways as I think about it. The one aspect to think about is how can I teach her? How can I teach her resilience? And how can I help my students understand the predicament we're in? How can I help them face the situation in its full ferocity, in its full danger, without necessarily like scaring them into panic, into a, a kind of helplessness, right? Panic actually might be somewhat appropriate. There's two key parts of that for me. One is being as honest as possible about the extremity of the situation. It seems irresponsible to me to downplay the possible consequences of climate change. It seems irresponsible to assume that we're going to fix it. And so I think it's absolutely a responsibility for the people who are talking about it and thinking about it to look at the worst case scenario and to look at the current trajectories absent technologies for carbon scrubbers to look at where we're actually headed and and the worst case scenarios and address that and bring that to each other and bring that to our children and bring that to our students. When you really look at the situation, it's scary and terrifying and it upends everything that we've been told to make sense of life, right? In Capitalist society—you know how you get around. What you know, what's important: driving, flying, uh, the different ways we measure prestige and status, and how we measure a good life. Um, none of that makes sense when you put it up against a planet undergoing massive ecological upheaval. That—that that is the the second part of what I think: being a mentor, or being a parent, or being an adult, or a teacher, with regard to climate change, means helping younger people sit with the terror and sit with the grief, the sense of unknowing and not push it away and not repress it and not try to find a way to just move past it without dealing with it. But really to really inhabit that space of unknowing and fear and grief, because that's the space, that's the reality that we live in. And the only way forward is through that. Those two things are for me the key things when it comes to thinking about the younger generations is to help them as fully and realistically as possible confront the extremity of our situation and then help them sit with and process the profound and complex emotions that, that are going to come out of that.
1: And I was wondering, you know, about your experiences in the army. I have to say, sometimes I would get angry at the amount of funding that is funneled into the army. I mean, in terms of basic human rights for education and health care that was neglected. sometimes i felt like it's mismanaged. i will say that and then i thought well to me the u.s army the marines it's like a a vast socialist enterprise Mm -hmm. although they don't ever call it that right highly organized so what have you learned from that how could we even use that to combat not wars overseas and you know outsourcing all of these more traumas upon other people but bring it back home and combat climate change
2: Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot with regard to World War II. The the conflict people saw at that point between the commercial sort of capitalist ethos, the the democratic liberal ethos, the individualist ethos of, of American culture, and the demand at that point, you know, to fight the war for collective, communitarian, sacrificial values. You know, there were a lot of people who saw that conflict that ethical conflict quite powerfully that's certainly one way of looking at our situation now you know it's true the army is the most socialist organization i've ever been a part of everybody put the collective good or at least they were supposed to and most people did put the collective good over ahead of their individual good there were income discrepancies between the officers and the enlisted but they were nowhere near what you see in corporate america you know Uh, and in various ways it was a very collectivist uh, and socialist organization you know, and it's possible, I suppose, to, to imagine somehow that transferring to broader American culture. I'm, I'm not sure how precisely because the army is such a closed system. There's a very strict process of getting into it. And there's this sort of initiation you go through. Um, and being in the military, you really identify as someone who is as a service member is not part of mainstream American culture, right? You might be as a, you know, in your off time, but as a service member, you see yourself as set apart. One could certainly imagine some sort of science fiction novel where there's a, a, some kind of socialist revolution, some kind of income equality, and everybody commits to the fight in that way. Uh, it's hard to see how that would work out in reality. It's interesting to think about William James talked about the moral equivalent of war, right? He talked about precisely how war has this collectivizing effect, and it uh, helps bring out the best in us in so many ways. It's a sort of, you know, early 20th century macho wilderness, Theodore Roosevelt kind of ethic. Really profound insights into ways that that kind of collective endeavor can bring people together. But his solution at the end of that, if you go back and read it, is for a war against nature. (laughs) Right? And this, you sort of, we sort of saw this in the New Deal. We'd build roads and dams and we would all team up and go out and tame nature. Well, you see where that's got us. And that may be a possibility as we move forward, but I'm not exactly sure that that's that's certainly not what I envision when I think about what a sustainable future looks like for humans on earth. It's not a war against nature.
1: I was just thinking in terms of building infrastructure because that's always a big yeah. thing that people say. I mean, whether we're rolling out renewable energy, you know, solar, wind, and I could see, and you would know more from the inside, you you have the training systems in place and you have that ability to roll out things quickly and even say, you know, we got to get this done. We have a deadline. And I would just love to see that because I felt as I would watch and it would make me so sad. I know that there's conflicts around the world and there's a moral obligation to step in. And sometimes that moral obligation doesn't outweigh what damage is done. But I often felt like because you have this standing army, almost we're inventing reasons to keep them occupied, right? Mm -hmm. And even though there's that moral obligation, bring some of them home.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it seems like what you're suggesting is that we sort of take the US military and turn it into a kind of climate force, right? Or like put it to work building solar panels. And I think that's a lovely idea. And I've suggested that something similar before. And it would certainly be one possibility. In addition to the kinds of infrastructure work that the military could do internally or internationally, there's also as climate change continues and the effects of climate change continue to disrupt agriculture and bring storms to other places, continues to drive migration, right? There's gonna be need for disaster relief, humanitarian relief, peacekeeping forces. And so there's certainly a a possible heavy green vision for the U.S. to sort of retake its role as the so-called leader of the free world and to use its military to help people impacted by climate change and help build infrastructure to protect from climate change all over the world. Yeah, there's a certain beauty in that idea. Unfortunately, there's also the aspect that the U.S. military is a gigantic boondoggle. When President Eisenhower warned of the Ascension of the military industrial complex in 1959, I want to say, you know, he wasn't just talking about a larger military, he was talking about how building for war had become a profit making endeavor that had insinuated itself into all levels of the American body politic. That's even more true today than it was then. We remain a nation built around war for profit machinery. That includes everything from gas guzzling jet fighters to, you know, increasing securitized cyber warfare capacities, right, and surveillance capacity. Google's big work now is with the government. Peter Thiel's Palantir and other organizations, and so there's the fact that in a deep way, the military—it's a socialist organization internally—but if you step back, it's what General Smedley Butler called a, a racket. It's a way to make money for a lot of people, and it has been for a long time. So, uh, and that sort of that kind of extractive, exploitative aspect of it is in a, a beautiful vision of. U.S. military is a kind of positive climate force, that extractive aspect, that exploitive aspect of it is going to continually work against reaching a genuinely just and and sustainable sort of future.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, we must
1: prepare for a sort of new normal, you know, whether that be at the larger U.S. level military. But I'm just wondering, what are some of the ways you've made changes in your life in practicing being a climate activist?
2: Let me first of all say that I'm not a, I don't identify, I don't think of myself as a climate activist necessarily. I'm trying to understand the world that we live in and uh, make sense of it and then make wise decisions going forward. And insofar as I, you know, am privileged, have the privilege of being a writer and a thinker and a professor, I do that in my work, right? To help bring what I find to other people and to try to craft craft that experience and knowledge and insight such as it is into narrative and books and understanding that might help other people if they're, you know, looking for that. So I wouldn't necessarily call myself a climate activist. You know, in my own life, I think some of the most important things that I do to help me stay grounded in the reality of our changing world and face the future in an open way are to meditate. Not a long time, only 20 minutes a day, but that's hugely important. Getting out into nature, you know, getting out to see, even if it means a walk in the neighborhood, right? But like paying attention to the natural cycles that we live within that are changing so radically around us. Paying attention to the trees and the birds, the water and the air that we live within, that we depend on for our life. Talking to scientists as much as I can, keeping in touch with them and keeping their understanding alive for me. Trying to do other things like fly as little as possible, like walk if I don't have to drive. I'm not entirely vegetarian, but I'm largely vegetarian. Some of these like personal choices for a variety of reasons. But I will say that a lot of times the kind of discussion we have around climate change and, you know, what you can do sort of comes back to these questions of personal consumer choices, you know, like, you know, what do you eat or how do you get around and so on that's all well and good from a, a personal point of view. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's not how things are gonna change. And it's not how we're gonna deal with climate change is by one person making the decision to not fly anymore, right? Those are worthy decisions to make on a personal level, but we shouldn't confuse those with the structural transformations necessary to address climate change and its impacts, nor should we confuse those with a real psychological, cultural reorientation to see ourselves embedded ecologically within a broader world, right? You know, in some ways, those are baby steps to understanding oneself as embedded in a world. But in another way, you know, they also offer the opportunity for a kind of sense of moral superiority or sanctimoniousness and feeling yourself sort of the opportunity to feel separate and superior to other people, um, which is in a form of alienating yourself from the world that you live in. Because we live in the natural world as human beings embedded in a social world, right? And so it's, it's really important to understand and to think about how we're embedded in those social relations and how those social relations are embedded in ecological relations. That for me goes back to trying to, to pay attention to the natural world around me, you know, meditate and stay grounded. You know, another thing I do that everyone everyone could do is I talk about climate change every day. Like anytime I have a conversation with somebody, I talk about it. I talk about wildfires in the West or whatever I read in the news, flooding in India, or simply the fact that it's... Five degrees warmer where I'm at than it usually would be this time of year 20 years ago. I suppose it kind of makes me annoying to be around to some degree, but nevertheless, I feel like just simply testifying, witnessing to the the ongoing fact of climate change is really valuable and, and can actually do a lot to help shift the conversation. Most people don't. Recent surveys looking at how Americans think about climate change show that. Even people who identify climate change as a a serious problem and are concerned about it, most of them don't talk about it with other people. And most of them don't hear other people talk about it. It's good that we do things like this, have this conversation. Climate change is in the news and in the media. Um, You know, it should be there more. It should be front page every day. But over and above that, we can talk about it when we're talking to our friends or when we're in line to get coffee with our reusable mug or whenever just in the conversations that we have we just make the ongoing reality of climate change part of the texture of our of our daily conversations it will just help us think about it more and think more into right the consequences last thing and this i shouldn't you know i don't want to go on too much about this, because I'm just starting to do it. But I'm looking at working with local neighborhood organization to, you know, build an emergency response team. And that's something we can all do is work in our neighborhoods, work in our communities to build, you know, neighborhood networks, so that people can protect each other and be more resilient when specific disasters strike when there's a fire rushing toward the community or when there's a flood knocking out people's homes and people need to be helped, then we can step in together and take care of each other. That's going to be increasingly important as time goes on.
1: Yeah, I guess we do need to have those survivalist skills, even in so-called developed countries. It's everywhere. I mean, Siberia is on fire. You know, I just didn't even think, and they didn't even know it. They didn't, it was just like, it's so big, they didn't know. And in terms of, but you're so right, because that's what politicians count on us saying, oh, well, we'll take our responsibility. But at the same point, it really does have to have that greater structural change. In your conversations, what are some solutions that you've come across, political or organizational, they think wow could we if we only we could just implement this wider
2: well that's the rub isn't it though uh, if only part of the tragedy or frustration of climate change is that we know what the solutions are but the very problem is implementation Those solutions would have to be implemented through the political processes that we live within, which aren't built to produce the best good for the most people. The political organizations, the political systems that we live within are largely built or largely maintained, we'll say, for the powerful, by the powerful. The U.S. government's known about the danger of climate change since the 60s, and it's been manifestly clear to the public since the 90s, but emissions have increased and increased and increased. And not because we didn't know what to do, not because we didn't know how to use renewable energy or how to drive less, right? But because that's not in the interests of those who have the money and power. And it's also not how our society is is organized around capital and, you know, extracting value from nature and extracting value from laboring bodies. You know, I don't know what to say. There are all kinds of people who will tell you that we just need to do this and this and this, you know, Project Drawdown or, you know, advocates for democratic socialism, people like Catherine Hayhoe or Michael Mann or, you know, all kinds of people, Bill McKibben, right? The solutions are out there, but in deep ways, we're not facing the scope of the transition required right? To get uh, off of fossil fuels entirely, right? Not likely to happen, it appears, in our lifetime, maybe ever. And even more than that, there's the fact that climate change is, is already happened. So, you know, the mitigation efforts going on right now are positive. That's great. They're in no way adequate. It seems that we're unlikely to see adequate solutions. We certainly implemented, and we certainly never have. And we need to address the fact that climate change is, is already here, right? It's already happening. We live in a world of climate change. There's a certain amount that's inevitable now. You know, given that we're not seeing the shift in emissions that we would need to see to really bend the curve down, we're likely to see some pretty scary times to come. And that, I think, is where we should be at least focusing more of our attention, right? We need to be thinking more about how we cope with the the last 30 or 40 years of failure, how we deal with that and how we deal with the extremity of the situation. One one thing that I find it's almost funny if it wasn't so so tragic is when people like Kate Aronoff or others are are basically like, well, the problem is we just need to fix capitalism and <laughs> and, and then, you know, we can deal with it. Well, great. Yeah. <laughs> if only someone had thought of that. If only anybody had been thinking about how we could live more justly and equitably together. And I'm being facetious, right? As people have been doing basically since capitalism's inception. Even before capitalism, there were, as capitalism emerged as a conceptual framework for society, there were critics at that time, right? Fighting against it and arguing against it. So, you know, that's a powerful tradition to draw on and think through. Um, But we also need to face the fact, I think, that, that that argument has been losing in the face of reality for 200 years. Since capitalism is a way of organizing wealth and power uh, that concentrates it in the hands of a few, the question isn't necessarily what kind of conceptual apparatus do we need to get out of capitalism or revamp society, but rather the question is how do you take power? How do you take power back from the people who have taken it? How do you take power away from the people who have it? That's the question that needs to be answered if you wanna talk about serious political transformation.
0: Hi everyone, my name is Lauren Chiname, and I'm a rising junior at NYU, majoring in English with the creative writing track. Roy Granton's work interests me because he is a writer that focuses on social issues through a multitude of genres. I myself, being a writer and a YouTuber at the creator Lauren Chi, in case anyone is interested, I also try to integrate social issues into my work as much as possible, so that's something we have in common. As a college student, in terms of our ever-changing imperfect society, What Grant has to say resonated a lot with me. The phrase, learning how to die in particular, stands out in this supposed post-pandemic era. Everyone is trying to get back to normal. I can't blame us, really. It's hard to think normal will never come back, that it won't be typical to see the whole face of a stranger upon first greeting or eating out without anxiety about whether or not you might catch COVID. But in reality, change is normal in every aspect of our society, social, political, economic and even personal. Mr. Scranton was right to point out how critical this concept is in moving through the world. We can't continue to move forward if we keep looking back. It'll hinder us from acknowledging the urgency of the problems right now, like climate change. Nothing we have is perfect. As long as we accept that, it's easier to think of change and what we can do better. Roy Scranton is relatable in the sense where he isn't necessarily a climate activist, he's just a person concerned about the climate. This compels him to write some of his text and start conversations, which is something I find especially intriguing, how he and says the importance of simply talking about social issues, climate change specifically. For example, a simple conversation with friends or classrooms. A method that comes to the forefront of my mind as a storyteller was storytelling. Mrs. Granton himself employs this method through his own work. It's like with the pandemic. We got plenty of pandemic books out of <laughs> the whole pandemic era in 2020. As changing climate becomes a more urgent issue, it'll be included even more in literature and other media. I admit, I myself am working on a novel focused on this issue (laughs) but this is an easy solution that people sometimes ignore but it honestly helps nothing gets done if we don't at least start talking to each other that's all i have now let's get back to the interview
1: and it's interesting because the people who defend capitalism the strongest, they defend it as something that gives everyone an equal opportunity and access. And I was speaking with uh, Richard Wolff, the economist the other day, and a socialist, of course, and the problem is flawed within capitalism itself because it never really destroyed feudalism. It just replaced it. It's built upon the foundation of feudalism and these other systems where there was, you know, a great power imbalance. Obviously, there's more opportunities now, but still. And so we really have to attack that. But an interesting thing, he said that in recent polls, Republicans in America have and, and you know, the Republicans are not fans of socialism, but when polled because capitalism is failing so many people and mm. asked whether they might be open to socialism, I think it was something that 40% he said, said yes. Not mm-hmm. because they love socialism, but because capitalism is failing them. So they have to find yeah. something. They, yeah. Capitalism has to live up to its name.
2: Yeah, and that's good news on one level. And on another level, it's alarming, at least insofar as historically in these periods where there's a mass of discontented people resisting capitalism or upset about its rewards, there tends to be a fair bit of social upheaval and often war that draws off a lot of that discontent and is able to d- redirect it into various forms of nationalism. You can see this quite clearly with Woodrow Wilson's efforts around World War I and the Creel Committee, which were co-extensive with efforts to grind down very active uh, American labor organization at the time from socialists to anarchists all over the US. You know, and and as well, there, there are numerous very sophisticated arguments for the value of capitalism, value of markets, for providing information on value and costs. You know, a lot of people do make arguments, and this is inarguable, that over the last 200 years, capitalism and technological innovation have brought a higher standard of living and greater health to the people of the world. That's inarguable. That's absolutely true. It's a combination of capitalism, imperialism, and technological innovation that have raised all boats in in their way and increased standards of living and so on and so on. Uh, You know, people like Steven Pinker make this argument. There's various kinds of just so stories about how we're all better off now because of capitalism and technological development than humans were in 1784. Um, The thing that all these stories ignore, however, is two things. One is that this trend line parallels various other trend lines that measure our devastation and exploitation of the earth. This trend line is real, right, in terms of human wealth and general quality of life as measured in, in numerical terms. The cost for that are also manifest and have largely been externalized, if not necessarily into the environment where they often are, they're also externalized into the future, which is to say, yes, there is this huge surge in human population and relative wealth and so on and so on, but there's Absolutely no reason to believe that it's sustainable into the future, especially not infinitely. Infinite growth is impossible, right? It's just not physically possible. The other thing that these people tend to ignore or elide or obscure is that this trend line is also, it's essentially grounded in empire and fossil fuels. It mostly comes out of coal, oil, and guns. That turns us back to the question of costs that have been externalized into the environment or externalized into the future, populations that are regarded as disposable. And then it also ignores the very real power dynamics behind that with with a kind of jaw-dropping injustice, divide up that wealth unequally persistently all along that line and continues to do so. Techno-utopianists who see technology as saving us from climate change are not about to give away all their money to lift up the masses. Their idea remains a kind of Reagan-esque trickle-down economic model where a rising tide will lift all boats and if they get wealthier, they'll save some, You know, it'll all come down somehow. But they leave out these questions of uh, disparity and violence and the dependence on fossil fuels.
1: Exactly. And this extractivist mentality where traditional society and and work structures where they had ownership of their own, you know, labor and their own community and the whole happiness index isn't taken into account, the whole feeling that then they become dependent as we take their natural resources. So it's. Mm -hmm. The accounting isn't really properly done. Sarah, I believe you had another question. Yes, I was just wondering, how do you think we can get a sense of urgency across at the higher, more powerful levels, as you discussed, because they really are in control of the situation?
2: I don't know. It seems to me that if, if you can't see the urgency of it now, I don't know what else could be said. The information's there it's clear the world we're living in is changing the world we're living in is on fire. If you don't see the urgency now, the only possibility would be, you know, if there's some way that we can motivated parties, right, could hurt them or take their power or threaten their power, create a sense of urgency. My fear in that case is that the sense of urgency it would create wouldn't be, oh, now we need to do something to save everyone from climate change. It would be, Oh, now we need to like squash these people who are threatening us, right? This is my objection to arguments like Andreas Malm. I don't know what he's he's a geographer, climate thinker. Anyway, the writer Andreas Malm, you know, recently wrote a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, right? Uh, Where he argues for essentially eco terrorism that specifically targets infrastructure. People have made this argument before. People there, you know, Earth First did a lot of work. The Earth Liberation Front, this was a vital segment of the environmental movement in the 70s and 80s, and even into the 90s, that explicitly avoided targeting people, but targeted infrastructure. It got squashed because the people in power and the the forces of law and order saw it as a threat. They identified it as terrorism. You know, Mom argues that if we blew up pipelines, that would increase the cost of oil production. And that's a way to influence the people, the oil companies and It would be a way to make it cheaper to go renewable than to to oil and so on and so on. And his argument might be persuasive in some way in a fantasy world where the people in power aren't in cahoots with the military the military-industrial complex, and the police. But we live in a world where they are. And as well, at least in the United States, and I can't speak necessarily globally, it varies, but in the United States at least, the general population is profoundly antipathetic to political violence. We've seen it again and again. When there's civic political violence, you know, at least over the last probably 80 years, there's a really strong reaction against it. It's hard to see a good way forward. This is the problem with power and being powerless, right? If you're powerless, you don't have leverage to influence the power. All we can do is plead, make our case. It's hard to figure out how we can actually find leverage to make it urgent for them.
1: It's true. And your books bring across that sense of urgency. I don't want to forget that in addition to your nonfiction, you, you know, you have your novel, I Heart Oklahoma. I mean, that was written, you know, Trump's America. Was Mm -hmm. it trying to crawl back a sense of hope and humor? Or what was the what was the origin?
2: So my nonfiction work and my fiction work, you know, operate in tandem or in a complicated relationship. Uh, Sometimes I don't know what I think about something until I'm articulated through characters in a story. Oftentimes I'm of multiple minds on a thing. You know, I see something and I'm like... It's complicated and I don't understand it. So writing uh, fiction is a way to explore that, think it through. You know, writing fiction is also in some way a submission to form, whether it's the narrative form of the story or the form of the aesthetic object. With fiction, there's a bottom line where the thing has to work as an object or as a story. That's the most important thing. You know, whereas with nonfiction, the most important thing is getting it right and being responsible to the reader and to reality as I understand it. That responsibility is there with fiction, but in a different relation to the aesthetic responsibility. With I Heart Oklahoma, in some way, I see that book as trying to like leap through a ring of fire, and I don't know if I succeeded, and I don't know how the reader comes out the other side, there's a sense with that book is in some way an expression of feeling trapped in in narratives that, that nobody asked for, but that nonetheless define us. Uh, narratives about freedom and the idea of the road and what that means. Narratives about the about the redemptive power of violence, how we understand ourselves and the, and the possibility of starting over again, this kind of American idea that we can always start over again. There's always this new tomorrow that can open up. And in some way we can erase history that we're not defined by history in America. We're always on the cusp of redefinition in a new way. And this seems like a liberatory narrative and it presents itself as a liberatory narrative, but what it is, is it's a narrative that freezes you in a kind of alienated mindset because it rejects social responsibility, embeddedness in history, obligations we have toward each other and across various boundaries. It presents itself as liberatory in that it can free us from history, but in fact, ironically, it winds up just perpetuating the same histories over and over again under this facade of individualism, freedom liberation, novelty. And so that book, I wouldn't claim that it's necessarily that the book coheres entirely. It's a wild ride, but it's definitely trying to escape from that kind of narrative much of the book had been drafted and in place before Trump ever ran for president. But there's a way in which Trump sort of is, he's a kind of like dialectical figure for those American values in some way, in terms of being both like this kind of avatar of total shameless freedom, while also being this avatar of repression and oppression, violence, it, It was horrible to watch that emerge in 2015, 2016, watch the Trump presidency emerge, achieve the momentum it had. But I felt that uh, a kind of frisson with that novel. I was like, oh, here's, this is part of America and it's emerging in this grotesque way. I don't know how to tie a bow on that, but...
1: You no, know, it's, it's interesting, well, how fiction can help us make sense of the maybe even more grotesque realities that we have to endure. Um, I'm wondering, you know, it is interesting, as you say, the freedom celebrates continual destruction and calls it progress. And in the right, you know, so we can kind of know these things and intuit them and observe them. When you have to create a world that people believe in and you kind of understand it on a deeper level, it has to be convincing. I guess in having to make this other world, you understand how this world that we have is made. So what did you come to understand about America in the writing of the book?
2: It's a really insightful thing for you to say and a really provocative question. What did I learn from writing I Heart Oklahoma? I learned that if there's any power at work today in America that I think most defines us and is most dangerous and most threatens us. I think it's the power of our forgetting. Forgetting our own complicity in history, forgetting our own choices, even you know what we cared about 10 minutes ago. In a sense, the power of forgetting the present is so profound today that it's really terrifying. And another thing I learned through the writing of that novel, this is a banal thing to say, but is that the role of race and particularly the social construction of Blackness in American culture is much more definitive and central to all of the questions that I was trying to address with I Heart Oklahoma than I understood at the time. You know, in writing that book, I sort of came to see some of my own limits on thinking about the social construction of race in America and how that ties into questions of freedom, futurity, and history, you know, which is a whole other, obviously, complex topic. Um, Yeah, but there is a way in which I feel like I didn't address it adequately in in I Heart Oklahoma. And that's part of what I learned in writing that book was that it's in there, but it's, it's even deeper in the American DNA than I had thought it was.
1: That's so true because we do have these founding myths and laws and ideals, but maybe even more ingrained are all these other things that are passed on. And I and I hate and I, I really hate to see that there's prejudices that are passed on from generation to generation and baked into our institutions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, not just in America, because in many ways America offers us uh, you know really opportunities for you know equal rights that aren't reached in other countries but it's sad when our ideals don't live up to what is on the ground you've really given us uh, so much you know rounding the circle from the beginning of the conversation we're talking about you know lessons to young people in the future and so as you think about the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation and the things you'd like to see changed and, and and what's happening slowly finally you know what would you like young people to know preserve and your important word remember.
2: One thing I would wanna say before answering that question is to say that I think it's important that we don't put too much on future generations in terms of our desires for solving all the problems we've inherited and made worse and passed on to them. This is part of the rhetoric of the ideology of freedom and novelty, right? Is this kind of faith that the next generation can fix it or that they might find the answers. I think it's important that we take responsibility for the world that we live in today And that we don't project onto the future the world that we would like to see, because the fact of the matter is future generations are going to have to figure out how to live in the world that we've left them in their own way. And they may figure out ways to make sense of that world and live in it that we would find incomprehensible or even repugnant. It, that's too bad. That's It's their world and they're going to have to figure that out. So I think that's an important thing going forward. It, you know, important thing in these discussions is to recognize the limitations of our thinking about future generations and to show some restraint when it comes to our projections onto the future. But I would say that the advice I would offer is first of all, to pay attention to history, to learn history and not just recent history, but deep history. Human beings have been writing down information about how to live in this world for, I don't know, 8,000 years or so. And even before writing down information, information was passed down orally. That's all. There's so much valuable thought and powerful reality and experience in that breadth of history. And it's a resource for the future. It's a resource to be lived with and fed and brought to life again and again. And it's also a way of understanding the present, because there's no way you can understand your own time if it's the only time you know. Like, it's like, a, it's like your language. You can't really understand your own language until you learned a foreign language, another language, right? Because then you can see how your language works in its own ways and its peculiarities and its distinctions, right? Um, and it's the same thing with our temporality, our sense of being in time. The only way that you can really begin to understand the limitations of your time is to really understand another time. Right. And that takes in-depth historical work. And so that's one thing I would say. The other thing for my daughter, for our students, for, you know, future generations is don't trust any adult, <laughs> but especially the ones who tell you that they know, you know, that they've got it figured out. Nobody actually really knows what the fuck is going on or what what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's gonna happen in the next 10 years or the next 20. And nobody knows how to fix things, fix the world or make the world good. We're all you, me, everyone who's been on your show, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, everyone's just figuring it out as they go. And we're all fallible, limited human beings who were born and grow up in bodies and die and nobody has the truth. Nobody has the answers. At a certain level, the kids got to figure it out for themselves. This is the charge for every generation. We have to do this again and again and again. This is the burden of being human. And it's also the very thing that offers the possibility of doing it a little better is that opportunity, that obligation to figure it out for yourself.
1: That's so true. I think that unfortunately, or that's the challenge and the joy is that we're all Sisyphus, you know, pushing that rock up to the top and then it comes back down again and we start over. Hopefully, if we do pay attention to history and we do remember, we can do that. We have a little bit of strength behind us that we can build upon. So thank you, Royce Granton, for your vivid wake-up call, helping us see into our collective future and what we can do to ensure our survival. We all live on one Planet We Call Home. And thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast and for your writing that bears witness and inspires us to make the world a better place for future generations.
2: Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me on.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Sarah Kadir with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interviews producer on this podcast was Lauren Chiname. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preissler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.